Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What does it mean to be optimistic? Does it mean we have hope that we'll soon be able to go outside without fear of getting sick? Does it mean booking a cruise, taking a trip to Disney World, buying a boat, throwing a gigantic party, a huge one? Hey, maybe it means just plain old getting a job. Now, these are the questions you have to ask after a day when the cyclical sign, those are the industrials, they all were great, but the tech stocks, they gave up the ghost. Dow dipping 144 points, S&P declining 0.81%, but the NASDAQ tumbling 1.69%. Oh, man, they hate tech right now. Yet companies that have revolutionized the Internet and allowed our economy to keep functioning during lockdown, that's, they saw their stock sink under their own weight. Sell, 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 sell. Meanwhile, the automakers and home builders roared, along with the chemical companies, the copper producers, the cop, credit card outfits, the cruise lines. The consistent operators are struggling right now. The sporadic boom and bust stocks, they are on fire. Why? It's all about optimism, people. Investors are voting with their feet. They're leaving these secular growth stories, the stocks of companies that do well regardless of whether the economy is running hot or cold. Instead, they're finding their way to stocks of companies that only make big money when business is booming. When, to quote the great Judy Garland, people, forget your troubles, come on, get happy. Yes, their betting will soon be able to rip our masks off and go back to normal. And that's the crux of this market right now. How optimistic should you be about your portfolio? Should you be about the future? It's a tug of war between the people who think we're too euphoric and the ones who think we're too cautious. For the moment, the people who think our long national nightmares coming to an end, they are the ones who are winning. Are they right? Look, there's still a lot that could go wrong. If we get the South African strain and we reopen too quickly, we could end up with still one more COVID spike. If we're not vigilant, we'll rip off our masks. Maybe that's another reason. Plus, if the stimulus bill falls apart, always a possibility in Washington, that would really take the wind out of our sails. But on the other hand, President Biden finally did something that I've been begging the government to do for a full year. He put us on more footing. 
Specifically, the White House convinced arch rivals Johnson & Johnson and Merck to work together so they can produce more of J&J's newly approved one-shot vaccine. We've now got a public-private partnership that's going all out to maximize production, with the president invoking the Defense Production Act to speed up equipment deliveries and all the manufacturing facilities running 24-7. Put it all together, and J&J says they can now deliver nearly 100 million doses by the end of May, not June. With the other two vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, that could be enough to get us back to normal in the next few months. Okay, that is pretty optimistic. But rather than speculating, let's go right to the source. Let's go straight to Alex Gorsky. He's the chairman and CEO of Johnson & Johnson. To hear more about this deal and what it means for the fight against COVID, Mr. Gorsky, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, great to be here with you. Alex, this is an historic day. I think we've all kind of waited for the wartime footing that our nation needed to be on. J&J understands that better than anyone, as do you, a veteran. Tell me what happened today that made it so that we really are in a chance to be able to maybe end this thing sooner than we thought. Well, Jim, extraordinary times take extraordinary efforts. And after this weekend, when we got a vote of approval from the FDA Advisory Committee, in the advisory committee for immunological practices by the CDC, uh, giving us the go ahead. We've signed another very exciting agreement with Merck and with the United States government today, announcing that we're going to be doing even more to accelerate and to increase the production and the supply of our vaccine candidate for COVID-19. And so what this means is that Americans are going to get shots in the arm faster And uh, we're very excited about the potential impact that this can have overall on the situation. And, um, you know, I think it's another also testament to the potential uh, that this vaccine truly has. Now, you have been operating, correct, 24-7 to be able to get people uh, these. And now you're apparently moving, pulling up to 100 million for May instead of June. Well, Jim, what we're doing is we've been working flat out, as you know, and it hasn't only been for the last several weeks or several months, but really for the last 13 months, ramping up a production facility to go from zero vials to 100 million vials in the first half of this year is a huge undertaking. And and we pulled together a very extensive network of internal and external partners of other suppliers, both here as well as Europe and in other locations throughout the world. And that's given us the confidence uh, and frankly, the capability to ship the 4 million doses that, uh, that we're in the process of doing literally as we speak. You know about our commitment to deliver 20 million by the end of March. And now working with Merck, working with the government, we're working on this goal to accelerate even further the supply that we're going to have in the coming months. I want people to understand J&J and Merck are rivals. When I say rivals, it's a little more serious even than Army Navy. I mean, you guys have never done anything together. This is not something that is uh, in the playbook for peacetime. This is a wartime coalition. No, but Jim, the real war here is against COVID-19. Right. And I couldn't think of a better partner than Merck, a company with a, an incredibly strong reputation, not only in the biopharmaceutical industry, but also specifically in vaccines, their culture, the leadership of the company, starting with Ken Frazier and now Rob and, and all the way through their team. We think it's a great partnership. And so we've been working with them, collaborating. And now that we have this opportunity, again, we think it's going to add considerably to our capabilities, uh, both near and in the long term. But we want to congratulate what Pfizer's done and what Moderna's done, but they have different formulations. 
How important is it that J&J's formulation does not require dramatically cold temperatures in order to be able to work? Well, Jim, we think it's important. And look, I think Pfizer and Moderna have done an outstanding job thus far. And in the country, the world should be grateful now that we've got three vaccines that have been approved and that are going to be used because that's going to take out the supply issue here in the coming months. And and all three of, of us are ramping up productions as we speak. And each one of them, of course, have got, you know, different aspects and exactly how they need can and should be used. And we think the, uh, the requirement around refrigeration is an important one. Uh, I know Pfizer has worked recently to uh, make that even easier. And, and certainly we're excited to know that ours can be used in standard refrigeration. So in rural areas, for example, in the United States, and particularly when you get outside our country, those kind of differences can be very important. And it's all about getting more vaccines available, more shots in arms. Well, let's talk about that, Alex. We know that we aren't going to be safe as a nation until Mexico gets it, until Latin America gets it, until Africa gets it. You're prepared to go flat out that long to be able to be sure uh, with your colleagues that that everyone gets it, that billions of these are made. Jim, this is a global pandemic and it's going to take a global solution. And we are absolutely committed to that. We realized early on that unfortunately the nature of this virus is, is that yeah, you know, we are only as strong as a country as the weakest link in the chain. And so it's absolutely essential for us to get as many people vaccinated around the world. And what we've seen, especially with these variants and mutations, is that every time another person is infected, you can almost have a few more clicks so that the virus is slightly different and that exposes more people. And so the sooner that we can get these vaccinations spread out, and that's why we're committed, obviously, here in the United States, uh, consistent with everything that we talked about. We're going to be working with Europe as well to get vaccines out in the coming quarters. We're also working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other organizations to help the developing world. Uh, so yes, you know, it's our goal to have a billion doses by the end of this year and hundreds of millions of those will be in other parts of the world. And how about the fact that the Department of Defense directly involved Wartime Production Act, President Biden getting the whole federal government, but particularly this branch that we all trust, involved in the process? Well, look, Jim, as someone who served in the military, I certainly feel a very you know, fond kinship uh, to them. But what I can tell you is this is a war, and this is a war against COVID-19. And we've got to marshal all of our resources. And that's why I think it's so great to see partnerships between companies. It's great to see public-private partnerships between Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and the United States government. It's great to see not only the FDA, the CDC, and the NIH, but also the Defense Department involved. And I think the more that we really bring these kind of resources and capabilities and expertise, and most importantly, leadership together, that's when we're really going to make strides against this you know, pandemic. And then on Johnson Johnson's case, someone was saying to me, how much is J&J making? I said, you don't understand the company. The company is about saving people's lives. And the company has a long tradition about cooperating in very unusual circumstances, including General Robert Wood Johnson, who decided that he had to take part in the World War II effort. That's the nature of your company. Right, Jim. This goes back to our very founding, where whether it was 1919 when we produced masks for the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, whether in World War II when, you're right, Robert Wood Johnson got involved and actually went to work with the government to try to share best practices from Johnson & Johnson and other civilian manufacturers with the government to help in the war effort. And I think this exemplifies where we know that a company of our size, our scale, and our diversity 
bringing a vaccine like this, that we needed to make sure that the cost was no barrier to access. And as we said earlier, we've got to make sure that we can get this out to as many people as possible right here in the United States, but also around the world. And uh, that's why we're doing it on a not-for-profit basis. And I also want to point out that I fortunately, well, this is the only time I'll ever say this, am 60, over 65, so I got it. But the way J&J works, unless you're filling, unless you're part of a state that says that you're much lower, you're not taking it until you can, correct? Correct. Nobody, you're sticking by the rules, but you do have to hope that at a certain point, maybe in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, they lower it to 55, then 45. We get that down, correct? Well, Jim, I think I think the important aspect of this, what I'm really encouraged about by the information being released, not only by us and the kind of volumes that we're going to be providing in the coming months, but also by Pfizer and Moderna, is that we are going to get to the point where we will no longer have a supply issue. Uh. You know, right now, the challenge is, is that with the limited, the finite supply, some of the rep, uh, recommendations coming out of the CDC regarding who should and who shouldn't get vaccines at this particular point, it puts a constraint on. However, once we have enough supply, then what can happen, hopefully, is we can lower the age requirements and some of the other guardrails that are currently in place, and understandably so. And then we can get more vaccines. We can go through some the, the stadiums, the high throughput centers, we can get out to more of the pharmacies, the communities, particularly the underserved communities. We need to make sure that we're reaching out there and doing a better job. And when we see that, I, I'm, I know that we as a country coming together, marshalling all those resources, we can make a huge difference in the coming months and uh, put a significant lift of the number of people we have vaccinated and therefore and where we are in fighting this pandemic. All right, Alex, you're a realist. So I'm going to ask a tough question. Uh, you can guide me. I'm feeling very optimistic with the capabilities that you're talking about and the capacity boost that we could see an end to this pandemic by late spring. Am I being too optimistic? Well, Jim, you know, I always say that I'm a realistic optimist and I'd always rather under promise and over deliver. Right. But I think the next several months are going to be critical in the ultimate curve with this pandemic. Now I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful with significantly greater numbers of vaccines. I'm hopeful that we're seeing the distribution system, the administration system, really start to, to build some infrastructure and get more capabilities in place. I'm convinced that as we educate more people, that people are going to be willing to get in line and to get that vaccination. And when we do all those things, I think in the coming months, again, we're going to see a significant difference. But we have to stay vigilant. Now, what concerns me is that if people get complacent, if they let down their guard, uh, even if we get some vaccines that we could still see surges later in the year. So we have to remember that this is a this is a long term fight, but we can make a lot of progress in these coming months back to a new kind of normal uh, that I know we are all really anticipating and looking forward well, to. I'll take it. I want to thank the great people at J&J, starting at the top for doing what you're doing. Thank you, Alex Gorsi, chairman, CEO of Johnson and Johnson. Thank you, Jim. Stick around. I've got my exclusive with XL Fleet, with Canopy Growth, and with Public Service Enterprises. Uh, I'm proud of Jay and Jack. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. 
Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now that the electric vehicle SPACs have pulled back from their highs, and some of them brutally, I think we can afford to be opportunistic. I want you to take XL Fleet. XL Fleet makes powertrain systems that can transform fossil fuel powered trucks into hybrids as they're manufactured with a fully electrified version on the way. These guys already have some gigantic customers. Listen to these names. FedEx, Coca-Cola, Verizon, and New York City. Now, I recommended XL Fleet in mid-December when the stock was at 15 and change, but I also begged you not to chase it above 20. Unfortunately, the very next day, it spiked to $19.54, so you didn't get much chance to buy it. Thanks to the recent SPAC sell-off, though, the stock's all the way down to 16 again, and that's after today's 7% rebound. Suddenly, it's looking a lot more attractive. Feels a little like when we spoke to Henry Fisker right before his stock jumped 32% the next day. But don't take it from me. Let's check in with Ted Hines. He's the founder and president of XL Fleet. You get a better sense of where his company is headed. Mr. Hines, welcome to Mad Money. Great to be here, Jim. Thank you for having me on the show. Todd, you have something that's so exciting, I'm going to start with it. At the end of February, you announced a partnership with UBS that to me sounds like the template of what can happen with XL Fleet. I want to give you the floor. You'll be able to explain to everybody what it is so they know how powerful and potent your company is. Well, thank you very much, Jim. We recently announced a 1,000-unit charging station facility uh, with UBS Arena. It's an amazing opportunity. Uh, UBS Arena is located in New York about seven miles from JFK Airport. So there's a tremendous amount of need for electrification 
solutions and charging in that area to move people, uh, to move cargo. Um, and so this enables the arena to have charging stations for their, uh, for their fans when they're coming to games or when they're going to concerts. They can charge their Teslas. Uh, and then at night or when the facilities aren't in use, which is most of the time those facilities aren't in use, we can use that charging infrastructure to support fleet vehicle electrification to uh, rapidly reduce the uh, cost uh, of electric solutions in the market and to provide uh, local businesses uh, with uh, a plug-in hybrid and all-electric uh, vehicle solutions. I know it's hard to try to quantify exactly what this might mean to climate change in the air. But let's extrapolate. Let's say you do this. This is the template. What kind of reduction can we think about in terms of carbon emissions? Well, transportation is now the largest source of emissions in the United States. Um, And uh, we can reduce emissions with our hybrid system by about 20 percent. Our plug-in hybrid can get up to about uh, 30, 33 percent, even higher with next generation versions that are coming. And all electric gets you to 100%. So with these products, we can help really accelerate the reduction uh, of emissions for uh, commercial fleet applications in the U.S., which is about 25% of the fuel consumption. And this this playbook that we developed uh, with UBS Arena uh, really is uh, teed up for others. Uh, and we have a number of other of deals like that in the works. Uh, we've actually had a couple of arenas reach out in the last week or so. Uh, so if you're the owner of a sports team and you're looking at uh, – becoming a leader in, in sustainability, uh, or even uh, making more money with your facility, uh, please reach out. We'd be happy to uh, help you uh, uh, solve that problem. Well, that's so at the link that in Philadelphia, they have windmills at the top of their parking. Now, that's not nearly as effective as what you're talking about, correct? We're talking about some pretty major uh, infrastructure here. A thousand charging stations is the largest deal that's ever been announced uh, for this, uh, these types of uh, charging systems. Uh, the next largest deal that's publicly uh, available for people to charge is about is a little over 100 and, or it's around 130 stations. So we're you know, almost wow. 7x uh, the, the next largest station in the United States. Now, I know uh, when you're on the road, what do you see in the cities? You see FedEx trucks. Uh, Coca-Cola has their own. They have the, you know, the kind of daily delivery that they talk about. Uh, PepsiCo. These are all customers of yours. We have over 200 fleet customers across North America. We're in about uh, 49 states, I think everywhere but Alaska. We're selling to municipalities. We're selling to hospitals, uh, ambulances, uh, shuttle buses, school buses. Uh, So we have a a very good established uh, customer base. We have the lowest cost and broadest offering of hybrid and plug-in hybrid products for these vehicles. We're also bringing all electric solutions to market. We just recently announced an all-electric garbage truck program. Uh, with, uh, with Curb Tender, who provides the, uh, the body for those vehicles. Uh, and there's more of those types of programs on the way. So it, it's the full offering of hybrid, plug-in hybrid, and electric. And then the, the infrastructure side of the business is a really challenging problem. This is actually one of the biggest challenges facing commercial fleets because it's not like the consumer market. When you try to plug in 100 vehicles at the same facility, you're causing a significant amount of challenges for that building. And we launched a new division called XL Grid with a great leader, Colleen Calhoun, with a couple decades of experience at GE and in power uh, and investing. Uh, and it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity where we can come in, provide on-site solar, energy storage, power management, clean electricity, 
while electrifying the vehicles. And, the, and those charging stations really help connect the dots there. Uh, we're in a great position to take advantage of a, a huge market that is just absolutely taking off. And one last question, Todd. There are many SPACs that come on, many of these different companies, their dreams. You actually have real revenues and a path to profitability, correct? That's correct. We're growing quickly, and we're off to the races. This is a, a tremendous opportunity. We're, we're selling thousands of units. We're, we're over 4,000 units on the road right now. Uh, most of our customers are well under 1,000 units. We've ha- we, have over, we have about 150 million miles on the road. Uh, many of our competitors are in the low single digits or, or teens in terms of millions of miles. So we've got uh, a, a great uh, number of commercial fleets who are already customers. We've got 150 million miles Thousands of units going out the door, and and this is really taking off. Well, I think this is working. Sustainability does start with you guys. I like that. Todd Hines, founder and president of XL Fleet. It's really great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. There's a lot of speculation. There are companies that may or may not make it, and then there are companies with real revenues and a business plan. You heard about that UBS situation. Does that not sound terrific? And I know that Jerto Nova like that. I think he actually goes to those hockey games. Bad Bunny's back after the break. Coming up, CBD is the new SOP for millions of Americans looking to relax. Could canopy growth give your portfolio a healthy green glow? Kramer's got the CEO next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. We've seen some crazy moves this year. But nothing comes close to the incredible rise and fall, and maybe rise again, who knows, of the cannabis cohort. After the Democrats swept the Georgia Senate runoffs in early January, the weed stocks blazed higher. Then they got another boost from the Reddit revolution. But then the whole group peaked roughly three weeks ago, and since then they plummeted back to earth. Look at the action in Canopy Growth, the Canadian grower that's been my favorite cannabis name because it's got deep pockets, thanks to a huge partnership with Constellation Brands. They've already got a foothold in the United States with their CBD business, including new CBD beverage that I'm holding up right now that they launched today. Yes, Quattro. And they'll swoop down from Canada in a heartbeat if we ever legalize it. But the action here is downright trippy. At the peak on February 10th, Canopy was up 130% year to date. Since then, it's pulled back from 56 to 35. And raced most of the move, though it's still up 43% for the year. So could this be a buying opportunity? Let's take a closer look with David Klein, the CEO of Canopy Growth, to figure out what's next for his business. Mr. Klein, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Nice to be here. So, David, I've got the new drink, the CBD-infused sparkling water. We know that some drinks really capture the imagination. I'm thinking what's happened to sparkling truly. We know that has been a big hit. Can this possibly follow in the footsteps of that? Yeah, Jim, you know, we launched Quattro a few months ago in Canada. It's already the number one ready-to-drink CBD beverage in Canada. And and it, it kind of illustrates our playbook, right, where we want to use insights gathered across North America. We then use our innovation and NPD capabilities to develop amazing products. Uh, we test them out in Canada for a bit of a test and learn process. And then we bring them to the U.S. with the help of Constellation's distribution as soon as we can. 
You know, David, it's, I'm so glad you're here to be able to explain this because this is not an easy drink to make. I've been backing you guys because I knew at a certain point this, well, I remember because uh, Bill Newlands told me and then Rob Sansom before that, that it's very difficult to make a really tasty cannabis drink, even more difficult eventually to make a cannabis drink that actually has THC in it and distribution near impossible unless you're someone like Constellation. Yeah, look, that's the that's the power of the Constellation partnership that we have. They have really strong routes to market. They, of course, know how to make drinks and they've been helping us every step of the way, which really goes well beyond the balance sheet support that Constellation's given us over the years. I have to believe that the competitors, of which everyone seems to think are all equal, actually lack distribution and lack a large partner that knows a big food and drink lab that can make good tasting drinks. Yeah. And and look, we we proved this out a little bit with our BioSteel, our sports nutrition brand that is starting to hit the market just now with a ready to drink hydration mix. Uh, We actually have utilized much of Constellation's beer distribution network. So these are guys that are out on the street, literally think everywhere that you see Corona or Modelo, they have the ability to bring our, uh, our BioSteel brand. You'll see us uh, try, to, try to really tap into that more and more over time with our, with our Quattro CBD drinks and ultimately our THC uh, branded drinks uh, when we can get them into the U.S. David, do we know what the, the equivalent uh, proof is, so to speak, of a THC drink? Yeah, look, and, and, and this is something I think the industry has to land on, right? So for a THC drink, if you want to equivalize to a glass of beer, you're talking maybe two to two and a half milligrams per drink, okay. uh, which means you, it's sessionable. You can then have a few drinks and have that kind of beer-like experience. One of the issues in the marketplace has been that uh, there have been a lot of drinks on the market that have maybe too much THC for the average user. And we, we want to use our experience as a, as a drinks company to really, really help educate our consumers around how they should be consuming these products because we want everybody to have a great experience. All right. Now, the great experience may be one of the reasons why you are predicting 40 to 50 percent compounded annual sales between fiscal 22 and fiscal 24. I mean, that would be the acceleration that a lot of people are looking for. Yeah, and Jim, that's that's that excludes our ability to enter the U.S. THC market. Um, that's just our base business, which includes things like our Martha Stewart branded CBD edibles. It includes Quattro. It includes BioSteel, and it includes our Canadian um, our Canadian business, which includes THC. Well, but on top of that, it really the opportunity is for us to come to the U.S. into the THC market through the partnerships we already have with uh, the two large multi-state operators, uh, Acreage and Terrasen. Now, at the beginning of your call, you do sound quite bullish. You say Democratic control of the White House, Senate and House creates a unique window of opportunity for advancing cannabis reform through executive action and legislation. That's a very bullish statement. You think still that that's the case? I think it's well past time, Jim, and I think that that's starting to, to, to be almost common knowledge Two-thirds of Americans live in a state where cannabis is legal, either for recreational purposes or medical purposes. And just like when prohibition ended in 1933 for alcohol, the items on the agenda were how do we really address some of the social injustices that were caused by prohibition? How do we create jobs and how do we drive tax revenue? I think we're in the exact same place with cannabis. And I think that 
uh, you see that our legislature, our legislators are prepared to act. A few weeks ago, we heard from Senators Wyden and Booker and Schumer that they intended to make cannabis legislation part of criminal justice reform that they intend to move in this Congress. Now, one of the things that you did talk about, though, in the call was that the reputation of the industry of being boom bust already is something you want to avoid. And I think you talk about the idea that uh, that really we have to accept it's a growth industry, but we got to deliver not just you, but everybody. Are we at that final moment where we can get out of the up 30, down 30 kind of craziness? Because we want a, a regular consumer products group stock here. Boy, I, I hope we're getting to the end of that, Jim. You know, I, 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 my experience is such that I mostly focus on how we drive a profitable business um, as we're winning over those consumers. And so, uh, you know, we're focused on really capturing those consumers, driving up our revenue number, but also operating as a profitable business so investors can start looking at us like a real CPG company instead of a speculative uh, a business, which which kind of is how this has played out over the past few years. Well, you know, that's why I believe that's why I was so good. And you move over Constellation that we're going to get a regular one. You need to see the drinks in hand, though. And now they're here. So I want to thank David Klein, CEO of Canopy Growth. David's going to happen, isn't it? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Their money's going to be back after the break. These are empty. OK, I just want to be sure. Everybody understand that they're empty. Season coming up. Is this utility working overtime to power a president spending more time at home? Kramer uses his power for good and gets you answers next. I'm always on the lookout for high-quality stocks that get thrown out when a new style sweeps the Wall Street fashion show. For example, over the last few months, the utilities have just been annihilated because these are slow and steady companies that don't offer much excitement at a time when the economy is about to come roaring back. Same things happen to the Real Estate Investment Trust. But you know what? Their stocks absolutely do get cheaper as they go lower, and a lot of people like fixed income. Consider the case of Public Service Enterprise Group, PEG for you home gamers. It's a major electric utility in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, including right here in northern New Jersey. They're my utility. The stocks Sports a 3.7% yield here. It trades at less than 13 times earnings. And the company's in the midst of a long-term transformation with plans to divest its non-nuclear power plants and invest in offshore wind projects in order to become more environmentally friendly. I think utilities are likely to remain out of favor for as long as we seem to, to get out of this pandemic. But you know what? we got to put some of them away and get some good income. Let's dig deeper with Ralph Izzo. He's the chairman and CEO of Public Service Enterprise Group to get a better read on how his company's doing. Mr. Izzo, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Ralph, I'm looking for uh, utilities that are getting de-risked, so to speak. They have some risk in terms of exposure to d- different power that they might want to sell. They get out of that, and suddenly the, the, the worry that I have is gone, and that is PSE&G, right? That's exactly right. We announced in July we were going to basically exit all parts of the merchant, uh, nuclear, the merchant power business that did not include carbon-free energy. Now, you do rely on what I think is a fantastic, clean form of energy, but is out of fashion in our country, nuclear. Are you worried that the new administration may not be pro-nuclear or worried that there are going to be issues involving certification that seem unfair, given the fact that you really should be giving credit for that clean energy that they generate? Now, fortunately, I'm hearing just the opposite, Jim. I'm hearing that uh, the new administration recognizes that 
even though the nation gets only 20% of its electricity from nuclear, it represents more than 50% of its carbon-free energy, and they're going to embrace more of a technology-neutral carbon-free approach. So that should actually put existing nuclear in a better place. Whether or not we can get something through Congress remains to be seen. Right. Now, it's funny. Uh, wind was, uh, no, offshore wind was notoriously expensive. And nuclear power is expensive. I'm not sure if, if you can combat whether nuclear power will ever come back, so to speak. And they have all those problems at Southern. But the cost for your wind project with Orsted has come down so dramatically that I got to believe you might want to exercise that 50 percent ownership. Well, so, so it's, that's a very good point. You know, the cost for offshore wind is coming down. Some of the earliest projects were $200 a megawatt hour. The Orsted project in New Jersey is under $100 per megawatt hour. And that's all about developing the domestic supply chain to support the industry. It's a brand new industry, so that supply chain doesn't exist. So some workarounds are having to take place that as that supply chain gets developed, those prices will continue to drop. Now, I'm sure there's some people who don't think windmills look nice. Uh, If I'm at Cape May, which is one of my absolute favorite beach resorts, do I see giant windmills when I go swimming? No, it's going to look like peach fuzz to you. It's 16 miles away from the uh, from the coast. While they're large, they're about 300 meters in height at that distance. As I said, it will look like the, the fuzz on a peach. All right, well, let's stick with the peach metaphor. How about Peach Bottom, which I've been to, the great nuclear plant? Are we okay with that one, given the fact that they're starting to get pretty old? Yeah, so Peach Bottom is a great plant. It's run by Exelon, our co-owner there. And they just were issued a license extension by the NRC to take them out to 80 years of operating life. I mean, nuclear plants are constantly being refreshed and refurbished. Every 18 months, we go through a refueling outage where we replace equipment that uh, has lived beyond its useful life. So you shouldn't think of the whole plant as being multiple decades. It's constantly being revisited and maintained with tremendous uh, attention being given to detail. Well, this is not a political show, but the previous president didn't really share this notion of uh, of climate change. But that is something that your utility has always embraced. Did you feel pressure to become less clean during the previous administration? No, not at all, because we knew that the science was real. We knew what the long term trends would be. And we're a 120 year old company, Jim. We're not going to be overly influenced by a few years of of a point of view that's inconsistent with the science. And I'm not trying to make a political statement right. here. Really just focused on the one issue and the science behind it. Now, I, I was kind of aghast in what happened in Texas. Immediately I heard it was the windmills. Now, I dig deeper. Now, obviously it wasn't the windmills at all. Right. But are you ready or do we need to be ready for a Texas situation, which is a kind of a worst case? It is a worst case. Uh, I have to remind you that we had a near Texas situation in 2014 when we had our own version of the polar vortex. As a result, after that, we did a tremendous amount of winterization of our power plants, above and beyond the normal winterization that we had always done. Plus, we have two other fundamental differences in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic region than exist in in Texas. We are well integrated into the national grid in this part of the country. Texas is not as well integrated, so therefore the ability to get power from other places is somewhat uh, limited in Texas. Plus, the design of the power market in the mid-Atlantic and northeast compensates plants to be ready to run, whereas in Texas, they're only compensated when they run. So that insurance payment that's paid in the northeast and mid-Atlantic markets uh, helps, helps support 
the, the maintenance of plants so that they're always available in, in times of crisis. I was, you have to do you have, by the way, have to spend a lot of time on maintenance, but you've also had a pretty amazing record on dividends. I always tell my friends, listen, I can't own individual stocks, but if you're mad at your electric bill, go own the stock. Your record of uh, years of dividends? 114 years without missing a year. Well, there it goes. To me, that's the story. Ralph Izzos, the chairman and CEO of Public Service Enterprise Group, symbol PEG. Really great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Look, there's room for all sorts of different kinds of stocks in your portfolio. It doesn't always have to be a rocket. It can be a yield. Mad Money's back in. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! What's that rap for? And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dead! Time for the lightning round! Let's start with Gabriel in New York. Gabriel. Hello, Jim. Hey, I wanted your uh, opinion on something. I bought a new stock about a month ago after it broke off from its parent company. It looked like great prospects, but since then it's been hard to get any information about it at all. The ticker is CGNT Cognite. Love yeah, that was just a it. spinoff. And, I, you know, I've got to tell you, i got to learn more about that. Now, it's, it's cybersecurity. And, you know, my favorite there is Palo Alto Networks, P-A-N-W. But let me do more work on that one because that is a new one. But I know mine and feel very confident about it. Let's go to Quinn in Idaho. Quinn! Booyah, Jim! Booyah! Say, I found a great one, I believe. Yet I wanted to see your thoughts on it. Board Warner, PWA. Bingo! You have got it. Absolutely. And by the way, let me throw in Magna as another one that I like. Automobiles are red hot, and you've got a good one. Jack in Ohio, Jack. Hi, Jim. Uh, my wife and I uh, watch your show religiously Oh, night, thank you. And, and thank you for all you do. Thank and you. We love, we love your show. Ah, you're and, very uh, kind. Thank you. Very gracious. Yeah. But... Appreciate it. Uh, I, I need your help on uh, on two two stocks. I, I hope right. I can do that. But the first one is Zillow stock, and and then the second would be Oracle. Well, Oracle is a very inexpensive stock with a good uh, good ba- uh, balance sheet. Now Zillow happens to be on fire, and that was one of the best conference calls. I know it's come back down, and I think it's a buy. It's really not a good strategy for uh, buying homes. I think that it rates uh, rates need to stay here though. They can't go up a lot, but I think you're okay. Diana in Michigan. Diana. Hi, Kramer. Hi, Diana. My stock is Pfizer, and they're doing a great job with the they, vaccine. They are, and, and I like Dr. Borla very much. Stock yields 4.5%, just doesn't have a lot of momentum. Is it an okay stock to own? Absolutely. Is it the kind of stock that I like to have in my portfolio, like a Bristol-Myers? You could argue that's a little stalled, too, but I think it's going to do better than Pfizer. Let's go to Thomas in Pennsylvania. Thomas. Jim, how's it going? No, not bad. How about you? Good. Go Birds. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Hey, I messed up, man. I made a real bad decision. I didn't listen to my advisor, and I bought a stock he told me not to buy. And now now I'm down 15%, and I need your help. You got to help me with I-N-C-Y, Insight. Wow. No, that's a tough one. Your advisor's kind of right. It was speculative and didn't really hit... Uh, some of the drugs that it has not really worked out. Uh, 
I don't think that I, I don't know down 10 percent, 17 billion dollar comp, uh, company whether I want to sell it here. But there are issues with the company. It's not doing as well as I'd like in this whole group. Is under a lot of pressure. Take a look at C-Gen, Seattle Gen. Can't get out of its own way. Let's go to Matt in Massachusetts. Matt. Hey, Jim. Booyah. It's me and my uh, favorite trading partner, Kitty. And uh, look, the cannabis stocks are so volatile. They're up and down all the time. Yes. Hydro Farm. They're, they're a manufacturer. So they I know. The and that's a good way. Mostly. It's like Grow Generation. I'm going for Grow Generation. But you know what? I have been uh, really been saying, I know people don't want to hear it, but I believe the canopy is the best. Grow generation, we caught a real, we caught a quadruple in that. Uh, four times 15, and then it was enough. And then, you know, that's all right. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, an electric gold rush and a crude reality. Kramer's digging into the future of energy. Next on Mad Money. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. years ago, I sat on the world's only natural gas-powered motorcycle, and I thought I saw the future. The late Aubrey McClendon, then the CEO of Chesapeake Energy, had built it from the ground up as a prototype because he was on a mission to make natural gas the cheaper, cleaner bridge fuel that would help us transition from oil to renewables. Now, Aubrey had his faults, but when it comes to natural gas, he was a visionary. Fifteen years ago, a lot of people thought we'd have to import the stuff to keep America supplied, not him. He saw the shale revolution coming and recognized we had it in abundance. In fact, he actually took us out to Ohio to drill for oil in the Utica shale. Uh, We only found natural gas. Aubrey was confident that his nat gas motorcycle would mark the beginning of the end of oil because compressed natural gas is cleaner and far more plentiful, at least here in the U.S. But it never happened. Five years ago, Aubrey died in an accident and the dream died with him. Fast forward to right now. Yesterday, the largest oil company in the world, ExxonMobil, announced that it's adding Jeffrey Ubbin, a brilliant activist investor, to its board of directors because they want someone who will push the company to move away from carbon. Exxon's the essence of gasoline. But when I look at the composition of the board, you've got a bunch of people who clearly believe in climate change and know that gasoline stays. Let's call them numbered. The rejection of fossil fuels is impossible to deny, as there's so much money being given to the electric vehicle plays, mostly thanks to the Tesla paradigm, as well as the green hydrogen plays like plug plower. We've never seen anything like this with compressed natural gas. Never got there. The number of SPACs devoted solely to electric vehicles is astonishing. And the major automakers on board, Ford's electrifying the F-150, the most popular pickup truck. Mary Barr, the CEO of GM, has plans to dominate the entire electric space. The future of the automobile industry is electric. It's just a matter of when, not if anymore. But when exactly is when? The oil companies tend to think that this future is so far off, they can afford to keep drilling and pumping and building out their current infrastructure. They're worried about their wells running dry, hence the constant need to find more crude. 
But electric vehicles have so much momentum that I think we'll be surprised by the speed of this transition. Right now, they make up 3% of the vehicles. I bet that number could double and then double again in the next decade. Ever since last year, I've been warning you that most of the fossil fuel stocks have become uninvestable. I mean, you got a, a new generation of money managers who care about the environment. They don't want to touch the oil stocks. Sure, the price of crude has had a remarkable comeback, and the stocks have done well. But that's from the Saudis restricting production, combined with worries that the Biden administration might crack down on drilling. With governments around the world taking climate change seriously, that's another black mark against the combustion engine. Let me put it this way. When Aubrey McClendon showed me that natural gas-fueled motorcycle, he had no time frame for when his kinder, gentler bridge fuel would take over. But the electric vehicle people, that oh, they got it. 2030. 2030 is their year. When I see the money flowing into the alternatives, it's clear that the age of oil is coming to an end. Only we won't need a bridge fuel this time. We're jumping straight into electricity. It's so inevitable at this point that even Exxon's trying to adapt to the new world. Natural gas as a transition fuel was a mirage. But the explosion of EV, electric vehicles, is the real deal. And it's happening far faster than anyone would have believed just a few years ago. Well, I can still make a case for owning a Pioneer Natural Resources, maybe a terrific, that's a growth company, or Chevron for that terrific yield. This group's day in the sun, it's over. And there is no turning back the clock. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.